Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science and politics. Our lead story today concerns the coronavirus. There's an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal by two reputable scientists saying that, well, maybe the coronavirus was engineered after all. Maybe it did escape from a laboratory in China, but maybe it was deliberately weaponized to a degree. So we'll talk about the pros and cons of what we know and don't know about whether or not that virus was engineered in a virology laboratory in Wuhan, China. And then we're going to blast off into outer space. Some people think that, well, the era of space tourism has finally arrived. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, and his brother are going to be blasting off into outer space on July 20th with the New Shepard Blue Origin rocket outside Texas. And so we'll talk about, well, what is it like to be a space tourist? And if you have a spare $3.5 million dollars, then you too can join Jeff Bezos on this historic journey into outer space. And then concerning outer space, Venus is in the sights once again of NASA. 30 years ago, 30 years ago, NASA sent the Magellan spacecraft orbiting around Venus, which was once thought to be tropical. Science fiction writers once thought that astronauts would use Venus as a tropical staging point for rest and relaxation. Boy, were they wrong. We'll talk about the pros and cons of Venus on this program. But before we begin summarizing some of the top stories of the week, let me say thank you for all the people that picked up a copy of my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. You know, I was doing an interview on PBS television, and the interview asked me, well, what happens if one of our listeners watches this program and decides to complete the theory of everything and become the next Einstein? you have any words of advice for such an individual? And I said, yes. I would tell him or her, if you ever find the God equation, the holy grail of science, if you ever find the God equation, then tell me first. Yes, we'll write a paper together and we'll split the Nobel Prize, you and me. Because that's what's at stake here. We're talking about a single equation that could essentially unify all the laws of nature into a simple paradigm. That was the goal of Einstein, who spent 30 years of his life chasing after this God equation. And he needed a paradigm, a principle. He needed some kind of picture that would guide him. And we think that picture is music, the music of subatomic particles. You see, when musical vibrating strings, very tiny, tiny strings vibrate, they can be identified with all the various subatomic particles that we see in nature the electron, the neutrino, they're nothing but vibrations on a very tiny rubber band that can vibrate at different frequencies, with each frequency representing a new subatomic particle. 
And so I've been getting a lot of proposals for the God equation in my mail ever since I made that statement. So let me be clear about this. There are three criteria that your proposal has to embrace in order to qualify as the God equation. The three criteria are, first of all, it has to contain Einstein's theory of general relativity. Second of all, it has to contain the standard model of subatomic particles, which is the highest version of the quantum theory. And third, it has to be mathematically consistent. That's it. That's it, folks. Just three basic criteria. If you can satisfy them, then you will go down in history as the next Einstein, the next great thinker who unified all the laws into an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long. So, if you ever find that equation, well, tell me first. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today, once again, concerns whether or not the coronavirus was engineered in a laboratory inside China. We mentioned before that there's a series of coincidences, not just one, but about 10 different coincidences, all pointing to the Wuhan Institute for Virology. In other words, why would a dangerous virus, the most dangerous in 100 years, suddenly spring forth from Wuhan, China, in the area of two laboratories capable of doing bioweaponry research? And second of all, why is the Chinese government resisting all attempts to settle the question once and for all? And the Wuhan food market, which was once thought to be the origin of the virus, we now know had no horseshoe bats whatsoever. Horseshoe bats, the source of the virus, we think, are found a thousand miles away in Yunnan. How did the horseshoe bat go from its site in Yunnan, China, all the way up to Wuhan? Well, they were shipped. Shipped. Compliments of the Wuhan Institute for Virology and then experimented with, and then the real killer. And that is, they didn't just study the virus, they actually augmented, played with it, engineered that virus into something called gain-of-function research. Now we have a new development. Two scientists wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal saying, if you put the pieces together, you realize that the virus could have been engineered. And how do you back it up? I mean, all the evidence probably has been destroyed. Many people throw their hands up and saying it's too late. There's no way that anyone can tell whether or not the virus was engineered or not. Well, that's where these two scientists come in. One is Professor Richard Mueller, Professor Emeritus at the University of California at Berkeley, well-known physicist. And the other one is a entrepreneur, a biotech entrepreneur, Stephen Quay, who has his own biotech company. And they look not at the circumstantial evidence, they look at the virus itself. You see, when you play this game of game of function, gain of function research that is augmenting and increasing the lethality of these viruses, you tweak a gene called CGGCGG. So that's the fingerprint in some sense. The fingerprint that somebody is monkeying around with that virus trying to make it more deadly. 
Well, when you look at the virus that is circulating around the world, sure enough, it has that trademark CGG-CGG mutation. Now, it turns out that other viruses, which are naturally occurring, do not have that. The other coronaviruses, which are cousins to this coronavirus, uh, do not have the characteristic CGG-CGG mutation. Then the next question is, well... Couldn't it have been created naturally by evolution? Not likely. It turns out that the CGG-CGG mutation that these two scientists single out is very rare, very hard to create using simple random mutations, and it is, in fact, the hallmark, the hallmark of gain-of-function research. That is, the research that increases the lethality deliberately in order to understand the properties of the virus. So you see, this goes beyond simply circumstantial evidence, like the fact that three scientists came down with a very severe virus in November of 2019. It goes beyond the coincidences that two institutes for virological research were playing with the horseshoe bat virus, the same virus which we think helped to create the coronavirus. So this is something that has to be looked at. So in other words, scientists are going to have to sit down and analyze the genetic structure. Given the fact that all the records have probably been destroyed, given the fact that it's impossible to talk to many doctors in China, many of whom have disappeared, by the way, never to be seen again, given all these facts, we have to look at the genome. And the genome, these two scientists say, has a telltale signature of being engineered. Now, was it deliberately released into the environment or accidentally reversed, released into the environment? These scientists don't say. They give China the benefit of the doubt and say, well, perhaps it escaped from a laboratory. But why was it engineered? Why was there gain of function tampering with the genome? And why was the CGG, CGG mutation found if it wasn't engineered? Now, it turns out that when the virus was first sequenced months ago in early 2020, it turns out that the Chinese sent that virus to the West to have it analyzed. At that point, it was missing, missing the CGG-CGG mutation. In other words, it was deliberately removed so that perhaps, we don't know for sure, so that perhaps no one could link the virus to experiments being done at that virology laboratory. But of course, once the cat was out of the bag, it was very easy to sequence the virus in the wild, and sure enough, it has the trademark of being engineered. So the conclusion here is that we have more than just circumstantial evidence. We now have hard evidence that the virus may have been engineered, but like all sciences, it has to be verified. It has to be checked by other scientists. One scientist alone, or even two scientists here, cannot suddenly sway the entire debate. So watch for the debate as it unfolds in the coming months. And that is, was the virus actually engineered because it was a byproduct of the gain-of-function research whose characteristic mutation is the CGG, CGG, the fingerprint of weaponization, the fingerprint of gain-of-function research. Also, many people are saying, finally, after so many decades of waiting, space tourism is finally within reach.
at least if you happen to be a millionaire. Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world, and his brother on July 20th are scheduled to be launched into outer space on the new Shepard Blue Origin rocket. For 11 minutes, 11 minutes, they will take off from the surface of the Earth and go 60 miles straight up at the very boundary between the atmosphere and outer space. Then the passengers inside will experience weightlessness, and it will be a spectacular event. The windows, the windows in that space capsule are the biggest, biggest windows ever on a space capsule sent into outer space. So the astronauts and visitors will have a glorious view of the entire Earth. Not to mention the fact that if you, if you want to go into outer space and you happen to have spare change to the tune of $3.5 million, you can bid. You can actually bid on an auction, an auction to ride with Jeff Bezos and his brother into outer space. Go to their website, the Blue Origin website, and you can see how you can bid to be one of these astronauts. Now, believe it or not, you don't have to have maximal training and uh, physical exams. Very rudimentary requirements are necessary in order to qualify for this ride into outer space. And why is Jeff Bezos doing this? Well, of course, he is a businessman. Money is involved. He is selling tickets to the, the, the uh, rocket to go into outer space. But he claims that he had a vision, a vision when he was five years of age. And that vision was to go into spot, space, just like on Star Trek. In fact, at school, he was even a play where he played one of the actors in the Star Trek series. And he even has a vision. He wants to see perhaps millions of people working in outer space one day and perhaps taking their pollution with them so that Earth becomes a celestial garden, a celestial garden free of the pollution that we see on the planet Earth at the present time. Well, we'll see how that evolves, but just remember that he has competition. Hot on the heels is Richard Branson, founder of Virgin Atlantic and also Virgin Galactic, Later this year, he will send his rocket into outer space. His rocket looks more like a space plane than a conventional rocket, but it too will soar to the very boundary of outer space. And what does it cost to get a ticket on his rocket ship? Well, of course, people are very shy about these numbers, but numbers that have been bantied around suggest that it'll cost in the neighborhood of 250000 to maybe $500,000. So... This is not for the amateur. This is for people who have the means and the inclination to become part of space history. Now, you may say to yourself, well, on Earth, don't we have enough problems as it is? I mean, these billionaires just throwing their money into space? Well, look at it this way. It does not cost the taxpayer one cent for the Blue Origin rocket to take off to satisfy the egos of these billionaires. They are paying for it themselves. I repeat, we're not talking about our taxpayers' money going to NASA and NASA then bankrolling these rocket ships. No, we're talking about that these billionaires are paying for it out of their own pocket. And how many of them? Well, we mentioned Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Richard Branson of Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Galactic, and also, of course, we also have Elon Musk. 
Elon Musk says, well, yeah, going around up and down is nice, but he wants to go to the moon. And he's selling tickets. That's right, tickets that were purchased by a Japanese billionaire. And in fact, this Japanese billionaire bought not just one seat, but the entire rocket ship for him and his associates to go to the moon. Now, realize that it only takes three days to go to the moon. On a celestial scale, that's a hop, skip, and a jump. Just three days to go to the moon. Now, Mars, of course, is a whole nother picture. It takes nine months for a conventional rocket to go from the Earth to Mars when the planets are aligned properly. Then you have to wait a few months. And then the next round trip also takes nine months for a total of two years for a round trip mission to the red planet. And so you begin to realize that this is serious business. I mean, if you're just an amateur, you should think twice about what it would take to go to Mars. Now, Elon Musk has said that, well, he wouldn't mind going to Mars, but not on impact. In other words, he wouldn't mind dying on Mars, but dying of old age rather than dying of, it, of an impact. And so you have to realize that Elon Musk was being honest when it comes to the safety of these rockets. On average, on average, average over hundreds of launches, about 1% of the 1% one, 1 of these launches suffer from catastrophic launch failure. Take a look at the famous space shuttle. The space shuttle had about 200 missions into space, and how many of them crashed, killing 14 brave astronauts? Two of them. So two out of 200 is 1%. And so 1% of the time, well, let's be honest, you don't come back. So some people ask me a question, would I want to go into outer space? Would I want to brave the elements and the laws of averages and rocket it into outer space and make history? Well, the short answer is no. I think there are braver individuals who would definitely earn, earn the right to go into outer space and make history as a consequence. And then I should also point out that the Russians, the Russians have been selling tickets to outer space for years, not just to go up and down, but to go to the International Space Station. In fact, on exploration, I interviewed on this program uh, a Microsoft uh, multimillionaire who paid to go up on the Soyuz spacecraft to the International Space Station. And I asked him, how much did it cost? Well, he said that he signed a document saying that he's not supposed to divulge the amount. But I asked him, was it in the neighborhood of $20 million? And he said, well, yeah, in that neighborhood. And so once again, if you have a spare $250,000 lying around, you may want to ride into space with Richard Branson. If you have $3.5 million, you can ride up almost immediately with Richard Bezos and his new Shepard rocket. And if you are a billionaire and wouldn't mind going to the moon, yes, you can do that. Compliments of SpaceX. And so, in other words, we're entering a new era in space travel, space tourism. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if our grandkids or our great-grandchildren honeymoon on the moon. Well, of course, that has a lot of theatrics and a lot of bombast by billionaires who, of course, are looking for a profit. But NASA has just announced that it will go back to the planet Venus. Let me explain. If you were a science fiction buff, you know that Venus has always been this luxurious tropical planet. Astronauts would spend the vacation 
a vacation in this tropical environment, relaxing underneath the palm trees. Well, that was the vision. Boy, were they wrong. When the Mariner spacecraft actually buzzed by Venus, they found something that was terribly unexpected. First of all, surface temperatures on Venus are not mild like on the Earth. They are about 900 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hotter than the melting point of lead. In fact, if you were to walk on the surface of Venus, your feet would sink, would sink into the molten, the molten surface of Venus because many metals are liquid at that temperature. And then when it rains, you don't get any relief at all. It rains sulfuric acid. A lot of the volcanoes spit out fire and brimstone. Brimstone has sulfur in it. And sulfur dioxide is one of the main ingredients coming out of volcanoes. And that in turn yields sulfuric acid. And then the atmospheric pressure is 100 times that of the planet Earth. So you'd be crushed like an eggshell if you were to go to Venus. So what would it be like for an astronaut to go to Venus? Well, first, you would be fried by the 900 degree temperature. The atmospheric pressure, 100 times that of the Earth, would crush you to smithereens. And then whatever's left, whatever's left will be burnt to a crisp by sulfuric acid. So why bother to go to Venus if it's so inhospitable? Well, several reasons. First of all, Venus is our twin. Unlike Mars, it is almost identical to the Earth in size, except a little bit smaller. So the question is, why do we have an evil twin? What made the difference between us and this hellhole called the planet Venus? And the answer is the greenhouse effect. It was Carl Sagan who said that if the atmosphere of Venus is carbon dioxide, and if it's closer to the sun than the Earth, then there might be a runaway greenhouse effect. The more sunlight hits the surface of Venus, the more sunlight is trapped by the carbon dioxide atmosphere. That heats up the planet even more, which accelerates the greenhouse effect. So you have this vicious cycle, meaning that life as we know it cannot exist on the surface of Venus. But recently, there was a blip in the news stating that maybe just maybe uh, cells in the air, in the atmosphere, can survive because the atmosphere of Venus is actually rather moderate. If you are on the order of 60 to 100 miles off the surface of Venus, temperatures could reach room temperature. In other words, perhaps there are microbes, microbes floating, floating in the atmosphere of Venus that in fact could support life. And in fact, just a few months ago, the element phosphine was apparently found in the atmosphere of Venus. Phosphine is one of the byproducts of life. The process of life creates phosphine. It's one of the signatures of life, in fact. And some scientists said they found phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Well, as a consequence, many other scientists jumped in on it to want to verify that fact. And, well, they found nothing. In other words, maybe it was a false alarm. However, NASA is saying that it's been 30 years since we went to Venus. We'll learn a lot about the atmospheric properties of the greenhouse effect. We'll learn a lot about planetary evolution. So why not go back to Venus? In other words, yes, we'll continue to explore Mars. 
will be on Mars sometime after 2030, but why not, in the meantime, send a few probes to Venus to understand its atmosphere, to understand, understand why it is so different from the planet Earth. And lastly, I get a lot of emails concerning, well, you guessed it, flying saucers and UFOs. The United States government is now owning up to the fact that it's sitting on tons of documents, many of them classified, concerning sightings. Sightings of strange objects doing all sorts of crazy things in our atmosphere. But the media missed, I think, the most important conclusion in this report. Yes, the report was full of documentation of objects doing things that are beyond our capabilities. But the report also mentioned two statements that I think are very important. First, the report more or less acknowledged the fact that these objects can perform gyrations beyond the capabilities of classified or unclassified U.S. aircraft. That is a stunning admission. Because before, you could always say, well, it's another stealth bomber. It's another super-duper secret weapon being perfected by the military. You could always say that, but now the military is saying that, well, these objects defy the known laws of physics as we know them today. First of all, these objects can fly between Mach 5 and Mach 20, up to 20 times the speed of sound. They can zigzag. And the crushing forces, the G-forces created by the zigzags, exceed 100. In fact, several hundred times the force of gravity. In other words, any living object that we know of would be crushed, crushed by these gyrations. Next, they don't create a sonic boom. Now that's puzzling, because once you go faster than the speed of sound, the laws of physics say that you should get an accumulation of air, which creates a sonic boom in the forward direction. And then next, these objects can apparently go underwater as well. There's one videotape where the object goes toward the ocean and just keeps on going into the ocean. We do not have that capability of an object with the power of a rocket going right into the ocean. So what are they? Well, the short answer is we don't know. But one possibility is that they're hypersonic drones. Hypersonic drones can also go between Mach 5 and Mach 20. Hypersonic drones can also zigzag because, of course, that's what they're designed to do. The whole point of a hypersonic drone is to evade a Star Wars shield, and you do that by zigzagging and making yourself a very difficult target for a Star Wars missile shield. But to go faster than the speed of sound without a sonic boom to go right into the ocean. I mean, these are technologies that the military admits that, nope, it doesn't have. So what's left? If you start to look at this, well, there's the Russians and the Chinese. They too are working on hypersonic drones. And the Russians are actually ahead of us in this technology. Uh, last March, uh, Vladimir Putin announced that yes, they have a working hypersonic drone. Well, the Americans could not match that. In fact, two years ago, the U.S. actually canceled its contract to work on hypersonic drones. But of course, because of that statement by Vladimir Putin, the United States has quickly revived that program. And so we're still left with the question, well, what's left? The Chinese? No one expects the Chinese to be advanced enough to do this because, of course, they're playing catch-up. Catch-up to Russia and the United States when it comes to weaponry 
and scientific developments. So what's left? Well, either they are extraterrestrial or they are hypersonic drives of some sort or perhaps an optical illusion of some sort. One possibility is parallax, and that is an object that is close to you that goes back and forth uh, can be confused with an object very far away from you, which is going enormous velocities back and forth. And so distance is the key. You have to be able to calculate the distance between you and the object. If you know the distance, then you can calculate the speed at which it is zigzagging back and forth. If you don't know the distance, you could very easily confuse a balloon with a hypersonic drive. Well, the military said, well, they've looked into that. They've looked into the fact that they have multiple modes of finding out the characteristics of these things. Not just visual sighting, but radar sighting as well. And so they dismissed the possibility that it could be weather balloons. that's it for the first part of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, and in the second half of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion about space tourism. Are we entering a new era of space exploration with space tourism? And for that matter, is it simply a waste of money so that billionaires can glorify themselves by launching themselves into outer space? So, we'll talk about the pros and cons of space tourism in the second half of exploration that we're going to bring on an astronaut, NASA astronaut Tom Jones, to speak about what it's like to leave the Earth and to soar into outer space. Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we talked about the beginning of a new industry, and that is space tourism. And if you have a few hundred thousand dollars to a few million dollars lying around, you too can blast off into outer space. But then the question is, well, is this just a plaything for rich people? Is this just a way to show off how rich you are by blasting off into outer space? And think of all the problems we face on the planet Earth. Well, first of all, you have to realize that these ventures into outer space are not paid by the taxpayers. You do not spend one dime on any of these rocket ships into outer space. These are financed by private funds. Funds from the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, to the second richest man in the world, Elon Musk. So this is not costing you anything. 
And yes, is it a plaything for millionaires and billionaires? Yes, that's true. Is it going to affect social inequality on the planet Earth? No. But again, this is their money. They've invested their money to perfect space tourism. And just remember that in the process, we're also going to be advancing science to a degree. In the sense that we have to create new industries, new technologies, new ways of shooting things into outer space as a byproduct of space tourism. Well, with us today to talk about going into outer space is a NASA astronaut, Tom Jones. And he's going to explain to us what it's like to go into the heavens as an astronaut. However, sometimes I get asked the question, would I go into outer space? And my answer is probably no. And why is that? Well, let's face it. Going into outer space is not a Sunday picnic. The rate of rocket misfire is about 1%. In other words, about 1% of the time, you're not going to come back. Now, to be fair, we should point out that the New Shepard Blue Origin rocket has a escape hatch. That's right, an escape hatch that we did not have for the 14 brave astronauts on the space shuttle that perished when the space shuttle disintegrated not once but twice. And so we now have a way to save our astronauts from disintegrating when there is a major catastrophic failure. So once again, our special guest today is astronaut Tom Jones, who will talk to us about what it's like to go into outer space. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Tom Jones. He's a former astronaut, author of the new book called Skywalking, an astronaut's memoirs. So we'll talk not just about the training of an astronaut, not just what it's like to go up there and out of space, but what about the future of the space program? Is it worth it? How dangerous it is? What about robotic missions which are cheaper and safer? All these questions we will ask our special guest, Dr. Tom Jones, former astronaut and author of the new book, Skywalking, an Astronaut's Memoirs. The first question for you, Dr. Jones, is as a youth, how did you first get interested in exploration and the space program? It's easy to remember for me. My grandmother was uh, a, a big reader, and so she went down to the Five and Dime store and bought on the, the remnant table a, a book called Space Flight, The Coming Exploration of the Universe. It was one of these little golden books of knowledge that you could get back in the 1960s. And so I was five, and she gave me this book, and it was filled with wonderful illustrations, paintings of what space flight might be like. There were no photos because no one had gone into space yet. But uh, that really captured my imagination. Uh, these astronauts and spaceships were uh, fascinating subjects to me. So I began to read more about those on trips to the library and very quickly got fascinated with the subject of space science and astronomy. When I was 12, uh, my parents got our family our first telescope, and I became the sole operator of it. <laughs> I was you were tough hooked, to get right? other people to let, to let other people use it, but I had it out a lot uh -huh. in suburban Baltimore. And along with um, the fact that they were building uh, rockets in my hometown as part of the Gemini program, 
in the middle 60s. I think all of these things combined to make astronautics and astronomy a very uh, favorite subject of mine, which I just devoured in school and at the library. And you went to the United States Air Force Academy. Why did you go there, and did you have in the back of your mind this career path that would take you into outer space? Well, certainly at, by the age of 10, I was aware of the job of astronauts and the fact that it was a reality and that they were building rockets in my hometown. And I said, well, I'd like to ride a machine like that someday. And during the Apollo program, as we watched the, the first run-ups to the moon landings, uh, I was aware that test pilots were the ones who were selected to be astronauts. So if I wanted to do the job, I certainly had to become a test pilot. And you've got to go through a military flight training program. And I chose the Air Force. So the Air Force Academy seemed to me the best place that was focused on flying in the country. And that's why I tried to enroll there. By the time I was in college, the moon landings were just finishing. And so it was very clear that I still wanted to do this. And I thought that was a great jump on the program, getting into flight school, becoming an Air Force pilot, and then becoming a test pilot. And I understand that you flew missions on B-52 bombers for the Strategic Air Command. Uh, could you elaborate? Well, after a year of pilot training after graduation, I got a basic science degree at the Air Force Academy. Uh, I knew I was going to be flying for a while and then try to get into test pilot school. So my first assignment after pilot training was to go to Strategic Air Command, which was a, uh, an outfit that's, that was involved in nuclear deterrence. And my mission as a B-52 crew member, a co-pilot and an aircraft commander, was to sit uh, alert duty out at the base. About once every three weeks, I would live for an entire week out at the base, trying to make sure that the Russians would always fear a counterattack if they tried to do a surprise attack on the U.S. So we trained for the nuclear delivery mission, a doomsday mission. And it was quite a strange existence. Uh, every third week, you'd be waiting for the horn to blow signaling a, a Russian attack, and then you'd jump into your planes and taxi out as fast as you could and, and take off. That's what we trained for. And fortunately, nobody ever shot at me, and the Cold War wound down to its eventual conclusion. While I was doing that, though, NASA uh, brought along the space shuttle and changed the rules on how you could become an astronaut. Now, many people who watched the movie, uh, what was it, Top Gun with um, Tom Cruise, have dreamed about uh, dogfights out there in the wild blue yonder. However, you went for a Ph.D., a Ph.D. in planetary sciences. So how did that come about? Well, to tell you the truth, I was in the Air Force and sitting alert duty, and I remember clearly being out there on the base uh, during one of those weeks of duty and watching the miniseries Cosmos by Carl Sagan. And this was a man uh, in a, te a television production that really captured my imagination. And I said, here's a guy who's doing this for a career, the thing that I've loved to study and read about all these years. And now that NASA is looking for scientists and engineers, maybe I can become a space scientist, and maybe that would be an alternate path. I knew that test piloting would be a tough, uh, a tough uh, assignment to get. It was very competitive in the Air Force, and especially for bomber pilots who weren't uh, widely needed at that time. So after watching Cosmos and reading uh, some more books about that particular profession, I decided I'd go back to graduate school and see if I could become a, a practicing research scientist. Now, a lot of people ask the question, if I want to become an astronaut, what do I do? Do I send a postcard to NASA saying, sign me up? What is the career path? What is the process by which somebody out there can realize a dream of going into outer space? Well, it's easier today with the Internet. You can get on the Internet and read all about astronaut selection at uh, uh, nasa.gov, nasa.gov, their website, and search for astronaut selection. But back then, you just wrote a, a letter to the Johnson Space Center in Houston where the astronauts train, and I got a reply back from the selection office, and they informed me about the basic qualifications, 
you have to send in an application, which includes a big civil service uh, exam and uh, a lot of paperwork to fill out, as well as a medical exam. And you just send in that application. They keep it on file. And then every time that they select a new group of astronauts, they'll notify you to see whether you're still interested in applying. And so I started that process in 1986. Now, 1986 was also a watershed year because that's when the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up on international television, a very sobering event. Seven astronauts tragically lost their lives in that accident. And we sometimes forget that going into outer space is not a Sunday picnic, that about 1%. About 1% of the time, there is booster rocket failure and major malfunction of rockets. So was that sobering? How did that impact on you? Oh, it was terrible. I was watching that accident. I was watching with the launch of that mission with Krista McAuliffe, the first school teacher to go into space, with a bunch of school students, elementary school students at the University of Arizona, where I was a graduate student. And the catastrophe unfolded before us on this big screen TV, and, you know, you had to try to make some sense of it for the kids and tell the, the kids that there was no hope that they'd gotten out. And it was a terrible emotional blow. Uh, next door at the Lunar and Planetary Lab where I was studying, everyone was completely floored, uh, devastated by this emotionally, even though most of the people were involved in planetary science and astronomy and robotic missions, they knew how serious this was for the future of space travel and exploration in general. So it was a real body blow. I had met the commander of that mission about a year before, and he'd encouraged me to apply to become an astronaut. He was a very uh, motivated motivated guy who was clear about his mission, and it was infectious. It motivated me to follow in his footsteps. And after his death, Dick Scobie, I decided that, well, he must have really believed in this to risk his life in such a way. And I knew that my desire to do it was very strong, and I thought if, if people like that that I look up to are willing to risk their lives, then I still think I could find the courage to do the same thing. And I talked it over with my wife before I began applying. Now, you're a former test pilot, and you know when you go into that cockpit that you're putting your life on the line. You know that unlike a civilian, which wants lots of life insurance and assurances, there's no problem, you know you're putting your life on the line when you go into a jet airplane. Now, when you become an astronaut, uh, are the astronauts also told the same thing? We have civilians going into outer space. We have politicians and multimillionaires now going into outer space. Are they really uh, mentally prepared for the fact that, um, well, like I mentioned, roughly 1% of the time there is catastrophic failure? Well, we're certainly aware of the risks. Uh, As a pilot, I, I didn't become a test pilot. I actually left the Air Force after just flying bombers because I wanted to pursue this science path. But I knew that the professionals involved in flying the shuttle were aware of the risks. Of course, SCOBY certainly was. And I decided that there must be a recognition among all the crew members that what they're doing must register on them as being so worthwhile that they're willing to risk their physical safety, even their lives, to accomplish these missions. And when I got into the astronaut corps in 1990, uh, I found that to be true, that people were thinking of this as a long-term program of exploration, Uh, They figured that the benefits they'd bring back from each mission would be building blocks that future explorers would use to return to the moon, get to the asteroids and Mars. So we all viewed this as a a continuum, and each little contribution that we made was worth the risk of our lives. Now, the shuttle's a pretty safe machine, even though it's had two terrible accidents. It's uh, one of the most reliable rockets that's out there. So you can always tell yourself that it's not going to happen to you, but you must recognize that it's uh, a finite possibility that each mission has got you know, one in a couple of hundred chances of leading to a catastrophe. 
Okay, now let's get into the guts of your book. Uh, that is the training of an astronaut and what it's like there to, to orbit the Earth and look down from outer space. First of all, the training. Let's talk about going into swimming pools, going into 1,000 uh, horsepower centrifuges, going into the vomit comet. What is the grueling regimen that astronaut training entails? Well, to begin with, it's, it's much like a college curriculum of uh, investigating the, the basics of spaceflight. So you bring in all these people who are test pilots and scientists and engineers, and they have varied backgrounds, but everyone's capable of learning. And so essentially it's a graduate course in uh, spaceflight and its uh, fundamentals and the systems that allow us to survive and work up there, the space shuttle in this case. So it's a year of astronaut basic training. And you start in a classroom, read a lot of books, get a lot of lectures, so that's very familiar to most of us, and yet uh, it moves very quickly into simulator training, where you're actually flipping switches, reading checklists, working as a team to put into practice what you've learned in the classroom. And there are also a lot of ancillary training experiences that are quite fun, even though they're very serious in mind, like uh, survival training. What do you do if you bail out of a jet or out of a shuttle, and you come down in some uh, distant location where you've got to await rescue? So we had water and land survival training. We also, as you say, rode the centrifuge to prepare us for the accelerations of launch, uh, scuba training to prepare us for underwater training in a spacesuit to simulate freefall, and finally that uh, ride on the vomit comet that everybody looks forward to, where you get 20-second doses of freefall as the airplane rides this roller coaster path through the sky. And that's both exuberant and exhilarating, and then finally in the end it's it's an endurance contest to see if you can keep your stomach and your mind together while this airplane does these gyrations. But it's great to experience freefall. Now, people who saw the movie Apollo 13 saw Tom Hanks floating, floating for what seemed like forever. And people said, well, how'd they do that? There's no room for wires in that tiny little capsule. How'd they get Tom Hanks to float like that? And as you mentioned, it was this airplane called the Vomit Comet. And there's a reason for that. People throw up. Is that right? Well, some do. Uh, most people get a little queasy after the end of a, an hour and a half on that plane where, where you do 40 up-and-down roller coaster uh, cycles to give you, give you those uh, cycles of weightlessness that last 20 or 25 seconds. It's very aggravating to be in free fall for 25 seconds and then be uh, slammed to the floor with two times the force of gravity as you pull out. And when you do that over and over, it tends to tumble your gyros and lead to nausea. I found that uh, I never really got aggressively sick up there, but I certainly felt after the end of those 40 parabolas that I was ready to walk wobbly off the airplane and, and go sit down quietly for a while. And let's talk about weightlessness. Weightlessness is the state of free fall. That is, if you're in an elevator and someone cuts the wire of the elevator, God forbid, you are in free fall and you are weightless because the floor of the elevator falls at the same rate that you do, giving you the illusion that there's no gravity. Of course, there's gravity. It's pulling you to the floor, but the floor is falling at the same rate as you. Same thing with the vomit comet. You're essentially being hurled like a rock into the atmosphere, and you are in free fall. So the question is, if you're in free fall, that sensation is a sensation of dying. That is, you're falling off a skyscraper. So is that the sensation that you have, that you're thrown like a rock into, into the atmosphere, uh, in the vomit comet? Is a sensation like the sensation that you're dying? Well, fortunately, your body is pretty easily fooled. Your mind is fooled because you're in a cabin of an aircraft or you're in the cabin of a space shuttle, and you can't tell that you're being hurtled through the atmosphere or around the planet at hundreds or thousands of miles per hour as you fall. 
either on this uh, roller coaster parabola or you know in an orbit around the Earth. So to you, uh, your surroundings are falling with you. They all appear motionless. That's your frame of reference. And so you just appear to be floating. And so it's rather a gentle feeling. You don't feel any uh, motion of high speed or even standing on the edge of a precipice and leaping off. So it's pretty easy to get used to. It's just a gentle uh, lifting or a floating feeling, and it's nice to be able to move with just a fingertip push against the walls. And I find it's uh, something that you actually forget about after a couple of days. Now, you spent 52 days in Earth orbit uh, during the 11 years you were in the astronaut program. So everyone wants to know, if you're up there for not just 20 seconds, but for days on end, how do you do very simple bodily functions? Like, for example, eating. How do you eat when your food floats in front of you? How do you drink if water will simply float to the ceiling? And what the question everyone wants to know is, how do you go to the bathroom? Well, all of those subjects I try to explore in skywalking to give you that personal experience of being in there. Uh, the eating, fortunately, is uh, almost a non-issue. Um, all of your swallowing and digestive functions seem to work just fine with the peristalsis that moves things through your digestive tract uh, at work. doesn't need gravity to function. You do have to eat these foods out of a pouch and drink liquids from a pouch with a straw inserted so that food and debris and globules of liquid don't float around the cabin and mess up the systems up there. So it's rather tedious after a while that you have to eat one package at a time. You don't get to sample three or four dishes at once. You've got to eat in a cereal fashion, and it almost becomes perfunctory after a, a week of uh, the novelty wearing off. So, but it's, it's, aside from a little bit of extra time and care required, it's actually quite easy to eat and drink. And I still enjoy the varied menu that we had available to us. Even though the foods aren't fresh, they're at least freeze-dried or irradiated or thermostabilized, so they retain some good flavors. Um, now, the bathroom question, down here on the ground, uh, gravity makes everything go where it's supposed to. And as I write in the pages of Skywalking up there, you've got some special training to use because uh, we use air instead of gravity to make uh, things go where they're supposed to. Liquid down a suction hose where uh, each crew member uses a personal funnel to guide the liquid into the tube. And for solid waste, it's blown into a storage tank underneath the commode seat. And then the clever thing about it is that the solid waste uh, tank, while it's not in use, is exposed to a vacuum. So the solid waste is sterilized and, de and dehydrated. So the next time it's used, there's no odor or chance of a pathogen getting back into the cabin. It's quite clever. And while it takes longer to use the system than on Earth, it actually functions quite well. Well, according to the book The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, when our first astronaut, Alan Shepard, was sent into a suborbital uh, trajectory, he had to go to the bathroom. Uh, he told Mission Control he had to go to the bathroom, and Mission Control vetoed it. And so they sent him into outer space where he essentially urinated in outer space. Now, that is not a good thing to do, right? Because if you have liquid inside your spacesuit and you are weightless, uh, it could be a mess, right? Well, it certainly was a mess, and I'm sure he was a, a quite a smelly guy when he came back and got out of the suit. But he survived just fine, and that's because of spacesuit design. They don't put any electronics that generally inside an oxygen-filled suit unless there be an ignition source that could lead to a fire. So the inside of a spacesuit tends to be a quite benign place and the liquid was just a little bit of mess. Fortunately, on the space shuttle, uh, we deal with free fall inside a spacesuit by using diapers, large, absorbent, adult-sized diapers that uh, can take care of that eventuality. And, you know, the space shuttle itself, you know, provides a means to get out of the suit right after you arrive in orbit, and you don't have to put the suit back on until reentry. So then you can use the bathroom facilities that we just discussed. So we're a long way from the right stuff now, and people seem to be able to deal with this quite easily. 
Okay. Now, what is it like spiritually and emotionally to be in orbit, to look down on the planet Earth as you are in a spacewalk, suspended, orbiting the Earth, suspended uh, in, in mid-flight uh, with this, this little cable that connects you to the mother craft? What is it like to look back at the Earth? Well, Michio, this was a great experience. Uh, I had been dreaming about spaceflight since I was 10. And here I was, 39 years old, on my first mission. And as I write in Skywalking, I got to orbit. I was so busy with my initial jobs that it was about an hour before I actually had a moment to look out the window. And I'll never forget that first uh, impression of the Earth. I was looking out on the night side of Earth, and instead of stars, I saw this big, round space or gap where stars should have been. That was the dark side of our planet. But on the very edge, the limb of the Earth, was a gentle band of robin's egg blue light that was growing in intensity and widening along the, the horizon of the Earth, and that was the coming sunrise. And this beautiful, delicate blue, and the fact that I was finally looking back at my planet after waiting for almost three decades to get there brought tears to my eyes with the realization that I had finally arrived at that moment in time and space. And you know, they were tears of gratitude to God for sending me up there and giving me the chance to do this, and they were just tears of uh, of appreciation at the beauty that I was seeing. And throughout my experiences in space on those the, the other three missions I flew, the view of the Earth never became boring, or I never became blasé about it. It was always riveting. I had to tear myself away from the windows to go to work because it's always such a, a lovely sight and so attractive to a human being to gaze on our own world. And do you also get a sense of the fragility of life? Uh, first of all, the atmosphere is extremely thin, and yet uh, it's like the skin of an apple, and yet it creates life on the planet Earth, not to mention the fact that the Earth is suspended in this rather hostile environment of cosmic rays and potential meteor impacts. So do you get a feeling of the fragility of humanity that we are, quote-unquote, on Spaceship Earth? You certainly get a sense that the Earth is a varied and delicate place. You see immense variety in color and in texture as you travel around the planet once every 90 minutes. Looking at the Earth's horizon, you can see this thin blanket of the atmosphere. Uh, you can look down at night and watch meteors burning up in it below you. And you can see the air glow layer high in the atmosphere uh, against the dark night full of stars. So it's aesthetically beautiful, and you're aware of how thin that envelope of air is in particular. Uh, I found that uh, you wanted to uh, get to these thousands of places on Earth that you could see, that uh, the rainforests, the glaciers, the, the high mountain peaks, the river valleys. You wanted to go, to go personally to all of these places to learn more about the planet, and yet you realize as a human being you're never going to live long enough to go to all of these places that you've seen from orbit. I felt a great attraction and, and oh, sense of uh, longing in my heart to be part of Earth. And I, I felt separated from it to some extent, especially thinking that I was half a world away from my family most of the time. But generally, I had this great attraction uh, for this lovely planet of ours. And I can't imagine what the Apollo astronauts must have experienced traveling a thousand miles farther away in space than I did. And uh, it was so strong for me, I'm sure that they must have had a great longing to get back. Okay, now let's talk about the downside of being in outer space. Uh, for example, the Russians set the world's record for being in outer space on one mission, being lofted into space for over a year. And when that cosmonaut came back down to Earth, he could barely crawl. He was almost like a worm. His, the atrophy of the muscles was so great that he could not stand up. And so let's talk about the fact that when you're in space, you have enormous muscle and bone loss. Short-term space flight doesn't present many problems. We exercised every couple of days 
while we were in space. The longest trip I had was 18 days. And so if you do a, a, a medium amount of exercise for an hour every other day, you're going to keep your heart, lungs, and muscles in good enough shape to do any physical tasks that's required and also to withstand reentry. And then you can sort of stagger off the space shuttle and get your land legs under you just as you were coming back from a long sea voyage. And within about a half an hour, you can walk under your own steam with, with no great worries. You feel heavy at first when you come back to Earth. That passes in about an hour. The, the longest uh, effect that I felt was about three days of uh, lacking a fine sense of motor balance. So I couldn't bend over from the waist and pick up a penny on the floor. That would have just toppled me over. I had to wait until my brain became used to using those inner ear balance organs again, and it took about three days for those to come back online. Now, for space station astronauts like my friend uh, Bill MacArthur, who's headed back to Earth on April 8th here, uh, he's been up there for more than six months, and he's been exercising every day for 90 minutes. He's been using both a treadmill and an exercise bike and uh, a resistive exercise device that allows him to do the equivalent of lifting weights up there. And by combining those forms of exercise, his muscle and, and uh, cardiac health will be in pretty good shape when he comes home. So I think he'll be able to walk within about an hour. He's got the benefit of a lot of experience since that Russian mission 16 or 17 years ago. He'll be able to be more mobile when he comes back. He will have, however, some loss of calcium from his skeleton. He's lost some bone mass. Some of that will recover back on Earth. He'll probably have a permanent deficit of a few percent. And, of course, we don't know the long-term repercussions of that. So while he's going to get some uh, professional physical rehabilitation, um, I think he'll have no short-term ill effects and It'll only be in the, the later decades of his life that he finds out whether he's got skeletal weakening that's of any consequence. It, it doesn't appear to be a, a long-term effect for these six-month space station missions. But as you uh, understand, Mars missions are an open question. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, and our special guest today has been NASA astronaut Tom Jones. And if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, or go to my Facebook site. We have four and a half million fans on Facebook. And check out my latest New York Times bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration.